So, Peter and Cornelius. I know these talks are really focused upon Peter, but we've got here Acts chapter 10 that we, we've just uh, been reading through. Um, just a, a point in in passing to, to start off with, but it, it's, a, it's, a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful little thing uh, in verse 3, that the angel of God appears to Cornelius, and verse 4 he says, What is it, Lord? And he's obviously nervous and frightened, and he's reassured straight away. Your prayers and your arms, your, your generosity has come up before God for a memorial. Now, there's a, a number of times throughout the Bible where angels appear to men. And every time, it seems to go through the same pattern. That the people who, who have the angel appear to them are absolutely terrified. But then the angel goes on to assure them, it's actually okay. Now, you remember how the Lord Jesus says that the angels are going to be sent out to gather us to the day of judgment. Now, I take that to mean that the first we're going to know that the Lord is back is that an angel stands there, right in front of us. And can you imagine how we'll feel? We will feel frightened. That's quite normal when a human being comes in front of an angel of God. Of course, that's a normal reaction. Scared not only because of the majesty uh, and the supernatural nature of the whole thing, but of course convicted of our sins, nervous, you know, who am I? And yet, as I say, there's that wonderful theme throughout the Bible that when angels appear to men, there's a fear, and then the angel reassures them. It's okay. Fear not. Now, seeing that that is such a Bible theme, one day it will happen to you and to me that the angel will appear. Maybe we've died, but the first we'll know that the Lord is back and the resurrection has happened is that we'll be awake and, wow, there's an angel. Now, don't you think that that Bible theme is going to be continued in your life? When the Lord comes and your angel stands there and says, he's back, you're going to fear, so am I. And yet, it seems to me that the great Bible theme will be confirmed, will be taken yet one step further, and we also will be reassured, it's okay. Fear not. That's just in passing. But as I say, we're really talking about Peter uh, more, than, uh, more than Cornelius, but seeing we're looking at Acts chapter 10, well, one can't help but, uh, but make that point. So then, Cornelius, as we know, was this centurion, Fairly powerful sort of guy, a Gentile, not a Jew, and he's got all these servants under, under him, and he's a righteous man, and he's praying to God, he's being generous, and that all has come up before God, we're told, in verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 4, as a memorial before God. Now this is very much the language of the Old Testament sacrifices. All that talk in Leviticus and all through the Old Testament about offering to God, it's picked up here and it's applied to a man offering prayers to God and a man doing acts of generosity. And suddenly the whole of the Old Testament talk about sacrifice suddenly slots into place. Because what that's showing in physical terms as people offer their animals to God was that all that was going to be fulfilled or is fulfilled in our experience by the life of prayer 
by the life of, of good works, of, of generosity, in this case, to, to the poor. They are our spiritual sacrifices that we're offering. So when we're stumbling through the Old Testament thinking, well, I don't have to offer animals, what well, I got to read all this for? Well, that's why. Because the essence of sacrifice continues to this day. In our prayers, in our good deeds, and in the same way as they had to prepare themselves for the sacrifice, they had to actually get the animal ready and cut it up and go through a certain ritual. It wasn't just a casual approach uh, to God. So it is with our prayers and with our, I don't like to say it, good deeds, because good deeds aren't in themselves, as we know, going to save anybody. But all the same, they are our response to God's grace. So then, Cornelius was a man like that who got it. Although he was a, a Gentile, he got it that this is what our life before God should be all about. And so he's told, as you know, verse 5 and 6, send men to, to Joppa and ask for a guy called Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with another guy called Simon, who's a, a tanner, a worker in leather. And he lives by the seaside, says in verse 6. Now, it seems that tanners in Jewish uh, society were somewhat despised because they tended to work with the skins of unclean animals. They were touching blood a lot, uh, the, the carcasses of animals, etc. And that's why this guy was living by, by the seaside. He was out of town. He was down by, by the beach, out of the main way of the, of the town. And Peter is there living with him. And so the idea was that this was a, not only a Jew, but a poor Jew. And so this rich Gentile, this army leader, Cornelius, gets his leading employees together and says, you go to this poor guy, uh, this poor Jewish guy, and bring him here, because I've got to learn something from him about God. Now that was quite a witness. Really it was quite a witness. And so often in daily life, particularly, I think, in the workplace, particularly those who, who work in offices and relatively sort of high-flying kind of situations, that same spirit of Cornelius comes out or has to come out time and again, where we may have to say things to the people with whom we work that are odd to them. Like, you mix with those people, but some of those people in, in that uh, group you go to, you know, they live down the women's shelter. Yeah. This is the whole nature of our life in this world. That, that we are called to make the witness and to do things which in the eyes of society, particularly our fellow employees, might seem absolutely crazy and, and embarrassing for us, when actually it's them who are the ones who are embarrassed. And we, we shouldn't feel embarrassed. We should, be like, we should be like Cornelius. And you might notice there that there seems to be something similar with another army commander, another Gentile, Naaman. You know, go and wash in Jordan if you want to be cleansed. He also had to do something in order to, to come to God, which was embarrassing for him socially. And I think each of us, in our different contexts, will have that same uh, element of having to humble ourselves and come up 
out openly for the Lord Jesus uh, uh, and for, for the God whom we believe in, when in the eyes of this world we are fools, as Paul says, for Christ's sake. So then, he sends to Peter, and Peter is in Joppa. One of the themes that comes out in these, these chapters now in Acts about Peter is that circumstances tend to repeat between the lives of God's people as well as within their own lives. And that's because for those of us who believe in God, there is meaning to our lives. Things are going according to some kind of divine pattern, some kind of divine hand that, it, that is in our lives. Joppa. Right on the seacoast, and Peter is not only in Joppa, he, he's living uh, in a house that is right by the sea. Now, Joppa, Jonah. Remember, Jonah ran off down to Joppa and got a boat to try to get away from God because he did not want to preach to Gentiles. Now, you can see where, where we're going with this thought, that that's an incredibly similar situation to, to what Peter was in. He didn't want to, in that sense, preach to Gentiles. And yet there he was, looking out at sea, up on the housetop, looking out to sea. I bet he was thinking about Jonah. And so God worked with that association that would have been in Peter's mind. So he sees this great sheet come down with all these different unclean animals in it. And it says he was hungry. That is, he wanted to eat them. Now, you know how the story really develops, that the unclean animals, he comes to understand, are like the Gentiles. And he's told to kill and, and eat them. That's in verse 13. But the word that's translated kill in verse 13 is the same word translated sacrifice. He's told, sacrifice these animals and eat them. Now, sacrifice and eating, uh, going together like that, this is the idea of fellowship, the fellowship offering. You killed an animal and you ate it in the presence of God. And part of the, the, the dead animal you gave to God. The idea being, as it were, that he ate it. And you ate of the same animal. And in that you had fellowship. So when he's told, sacrifice the, these unclean animals and eat, and God is telling him to do this, the idea was fellowship with them. And as we know, he then, after that, Cornelius basically says, well, I believe, can I fellowship with you? Can I be baptized? And Peter says, well, of course, now I, I understand from the vision, etc. That, that uh, yes, you can. So then, in verse 12, it says that he saw all manner of unclean animals. And it, the, the Greek seems to imply he saw every single type of animal. All the unclean animals, every one of them. And yet he was hungry. He wanted to eat. And I think that's significant, because it would seem to me that in his heart, he, he maybe subconsciously even, wanted to see the Gentiles converted. He wanted this to happen. And yet he felt it couldn't happen because it wasn't allowed by God. 
So then, God tells him to, to do this, that he must eat them, sacrifice them, and, and eat these animals. And it's done three times, and three times Peter says, no. And you feel like saying, well, come on, Peter, don't you remember what the Lord Jesus said in Mark 7, where he, he says it's not what you eat that is important, it's not what goes into you, into your mouth, it's what comes out of the heart or, or the mind. That's what's important, that's what's defiling, and the comment is actually made there, it seems inserted uh, by the Gospel writer under inspiration, this Jesus said, cleansing all food. You think, Peter, did you hear that? It's written there in the Gospels. This was part of the first century preaching of the Gospel. Because the, tr the Gospel records are transcripts of how the Gospel was normally preached. So, Peter would have known that and even preached that. That that's what Jesus had said. And that Jesus had cleansed all food. And, okay, Peter, well, why? What's your problem? You'll notice that when the, he's told to sacrifice and eat these unclean animals, he doesn't say, no, Lord, I can't do that because the Old Testament says you shouldn't eat an unclean animal. I think that's maybe what we expect him to say, but he doesn't say that. What does he say? Well, let's, uh, let, let, let's look at the record in, in Acts 10. And he says, verse 14, not so, Lord, because I have never eaten anything common or unclean. He doesn't say, no, Lord, because the Bible says I should not. The Old Testament does say you shouldn't eat unclean animals. But he doesn't say that. He says, no, I can't eat it because I never have done. In other words, he's saying, I cannot break my tradition. This is what I've stood for. I am a Jew. I can't even go into the house of a Gentile and eat unclean food. I absolutely have never done this. So I can't do it because I've never done it. And this is the whole power of the gospel. We talk about the gospel having power and God's word having power. It's leading us to do things that we have never done before. To go someplace that we have never been. I don't mean necessarily geographically. Maybe it is that, but, but I mean in our minds. To go through new barriers. And so I ask you, what are the new barriers that you, after your conversion, because Peter was converted at this time already, he was counted as a believer, what are the new barriers that you are going through or have gone through? Because... Christianity is not about being stuck in, in the mire of mediocrity. It is not about the same old scene. We are being led on a journey. And Peter says, well, I can do that because I've never done it. And that whole idea was, three times, do it. Now, why do you think it was done three times? It's quite a theme with, with Peter that things happened three times. You know, he denies the Lord three times. And then you remember in John 21, 15 to 17, the Lord appears to him and, and three times says to him, go and feed my, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And here three times he's told, Peter, go and eat. Fellowship with the Gentiles. We know that's what he's really being told. And it seems to me that the three times when he's told, go and feed my sheep, he's now being 
told here how concretely and actually to do that. In other words, three times, fellowship the Gentiles. Preach to the Gentiles. They're my sheep. And again, the Lord had set him up for that understanding when he he had told Peter and all the disciples, I've got other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold, and them also I will bring. So then, three times. The impression we get from this chapter, and later on from chapter 12, that's when Peter's in prison and he's led out by the angel, and he stands in the street after the angel has left him, and he thinks about it and wonders what all this means. My impression from all this is that Peter is learning, that he's thinking. You can almost hear a sort of tick-tock, tick-tock, sort of in the guy's mind, as he's hearing these things and trying to make sense of what's going on in his life, seeing, for example, the connection between the three times. When he, you know, three times he, he's told to feed the lambs, now three times he's told to go and eat the, uh, eat the unclean animals. And I'd, I'd like to take you to a verse in Romans where the same idea really seems to occur about eating and sacrificing in the context of preaching. It's in Romans 15, verse 16. Romans 15, verse 16. Where Paul is reflecting upon his, his ministry to, to the Gentiles. And he says that, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ. And who were the ministers in the Old Covenant? The ministers were the priests who ministered before Yahweh. So he says that I might be a minister, if you like, a priest of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering or serving the gospel of God, service is again a priestly idea, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, an acceptable sacrifice. So again, the equivalent of the priest and the offerer offering up the sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice, is in one sense our preaching of the gospel. And so when Peter is told to, to rise and kill a sacrifice and, and eat, he should have understood, and he did eventually understand, that this talked about preaching to the Gentiles. But in verse 17, this is back in Acts 10, verse 17, we're told that Peter doubted. Acts 10, verse 17, Peter wondered within himself what this vision should mean. He wondered or he doubted within himself. And then, ding dong, the doorbell goes. He hears people rattling on the gate. And he's up on the, on the housetop. And he goes down. And there's three guys that say, like, we're Gentiles. Um, you come with us. Uh, there's a, a, a Roman centurion who's invited you to come and uh, tell him something about God. He was wondering what the vision was to mean. He didn't just think, oh, well, I don't know what that was all about. Okay, like, what's for lunch? You know, he was hungry and they were cooking the food downstairs. It was like, okay. No, he was thinking, what is going on in my life? What is God trying to tell me? And because he was doing that, ding dong, the doorbell goes, 
there's the invitation to do something. And that is what will happen in your life and mine. If our, our lives are, are dedicated to the, to, to the Father and His Son and His Word, and we're trying to make sense of what He's saying and doing with us in our lives, then the doorbell will go, as it were, and the situations will arise that make sense to us of what He's told us. How many times do you and I read the Bible every day, and I hope we do read the Bible every day, and we don't understand? But then, because we're trying to understand, and because of the back of our mind, when we're I don't know, going around the supermarket, doing a shopping, or we're driving, or with something on transport, or whatever. Because subconsciously we're churning it over, trying to understand, suddenly, wow, a situation happens, and it becomes clear. But there's got to be that desire, that thirst for God, that hunger for Him, that desire to know Him, and to understand, and to see His hand in our lives. And then, providence is it was called many years ago, and I still like the word, providence will come into play. So then, he's told in verse 20, Arise, go with them, and don't doubt. But he had doubted. You see, he wasn't strong, as it were. He didn't uh, hear the vision and say, Oh, that's what i got to do. Right, sure, I'll do it. He was fighting against it. He couldn't totally make sense of it. Do not doubt, he's told. Go with them. Rather similar, actually, to what's, what was said to Balaam, also by an angel, when men came to him. I think it just shows, and this chapter shows, and, and we'll see later on in the next study in chapter 12, how the angels are working. Okay, in Peter's time, well, he saw the actual angel and he heard a voice from heaven, etc. Fair enough, we don't actually see well, angels in bright clothing anyway. Uh, and we don't hear the bolts out of the sky telling us to do this, that or the other. But that does not mean that the ministry of angels has finished. They are active in our lives. Really, really active. Just as they were in the first century. So then, he really tried to understand. And as I say, it, it reminds me of how when he's led out of prison by the angel, maybe the same angel, uh, in chapter 12, verse 9, he wonders in himself, what is all this about? And then he goes to, to, to the, uh, the place where the believers are gathered together. And so, we talk about how Jesus is the meaning of life, how the, the Bible explains life to us, and now we've got the meaning of life. But putting meaning into words, what does that mean? It does not mean that, oh, you open the Bible and suddenly you understand everything about your life and about the decisions you've got tomorrow and the ones you had yesterday. It's not quite that primitive. But, you know, you, you, you open Proverbs chapter, I don't know, 99 verse 99, and you find the immediate answer to today's problem. It's a lot more subtle than that. Even a man of Peter's stature, and you know, we're talking about his human side, but he, he was one of the greatest believers that there was that is presented to us anyway in the New Testament. He thought about these things, and God 
used his struggle, Peter's struggle to understand, to teach him. And he brought circumstances into play, etc. So, when we say that we want to find the meaning of life, it's not that simple that you just open the Bible and, wow, a verse jumps out at you and there is the meaning of your life. It's not like that. It's an ongoing, dynamic interplay between you and your God, or I should say God and you, and it's sort of mediated, I think, through God's Word, through our hearing of His voice in the Scriptures, our struggle to understand, our difficulty in accepting that we are being pushed through new barriers all the time, our refusal even to follow where we're being told to go. All this is brought together and then the meaning of life is revealed to us. But the, the enemy of all this is indifference. Is the attitude, which there is throughout the world, the people of the world, that life is not so terribly serious. That it doesn't really matter. We just let life happen to us. That's what so many people do. They just let it happen to them. And if it turns out nice and happy for them for a moment, well, that's a bonus. If it's not, if illness comes or whatever, that's a negative. And they just let it happen. But we are not to let life happen to us. We are to live life. Live life to its full. Guided by God, knowing that His hand is in our lives. So then, we're told in the record here, in in Acts 10, that there were men at the gate. Peter's in the house, and he's praying to God, and an angel has been active with Cornelius and with him, uh, and men are knocking at the gate, and he's been praying, and he's, he comes down to answer them and to, to open the gate. And it actually says in verse 17 that they stood before the gate. Acts 10, verse 17. Now, all this is so similar to what happens to Peter in chapter 12. Now, Peter was put in prison. An angel is again active, probably the same angel, leads him out of prison. He stands, we're told, in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, before the gate of a house inside which people are praying. And he, in chapter 12, he knocks on the gate. And the gate is opened, and he is brought into the house. Now, it's so similar, isn't it, with what's going on here. It's just that it's the other way around. Peter is the one who's praying, and other people are knocking on the gate, standing before the gate, knocking on the gate. He comes down, opens to them, talks to them, etc. What is, what's that similarity mean? The similarities are so great, they must, must be intentional. And I think it's this, that God will put us through one situation, and then he will turn it around, so that we know how the other guy felt, or feels. And I think it shows that the, the way that there's a sense of kind of deja vu in our lives, that we go through one event and we see how actually that was so similar to what I went through last year, or ten years ago, or, or more, or two hours ago. 
And it shows that our lives are not random happenings, that life doesn't just happen to us, but that God is in control, and that in some sense things are working according to a pattern, that there is a divine hand. I don't mean a hand that forces but a hand that is lovingly and earnestly and very, very powerfully involved. And so, in the most simple level, you know, we are not alone. Man is not alone. You are not alone. I am not alone. But God is with us. And this is a profound thought. Oh, the Bibles are full of this. You know this, I know this. But when it really dawns upon you that we are not alone, that we live our lives before God, that we are playing a part in His purpose, and He is taking us somewhere, that we are not walking around in circles, but we are going someplace. This just imparts so much meaning and purpose to life that no longer do we sit as couch potatoes watching the telly, because... There's basically nothing else to do. That's so sad that people sit in front of the TV and waste their lives or surf around on the internet these days because they actually haven't got anything else to do. If you think I'm having a bit of a go at telly, TV, uh, and wasting time on the internet, well, you'd be right. I mean... We as believers have got so much else. We have a life to live, not hours and days to fritter away. And God is actively pushing us, chasing us, hunting us, as, as Job says, because he loves us and he wants us for his very own. So then, back to, uh, back to Acts 10. Peter says... In verse uh, 21, Peter says, I am the one whom you seek. For what reason have you come? I'm the one whom you seek. For what reason have you come? Both of those short sentences are quoting the words of Jesus. And if you are making notes, um, Matthew 26, verse 50, this is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he says, when the soldiers appear, he says, I am the, the, the one whom, uh, whom you seek. And then he also says, Uh, John 18, verse 4, when they, they come to him, uh, he says, Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. Uh, quoting again from the Matthew 27, verse, verse 50 uh, passage. Sorry, Matthew 26, verse 50. Jesus says to Judas, Friend, why have you come? Wherefore are you come? And here in Acts 10, 
Peter is quoting those very phrases of Jesus when he says to them, uh, when they're knocking there, and he says, Whom are you seeking? And wherefore have you come? Now, I think you could say he's quoting Jesus out of context. And he's quoting Jesus word for word, but I don't think there's any particular context. I don't think he's saying, oh, I'm Jesus and you're like Judas. Or you're like the soldiers that came to arrest Jesus. No, I I really don't think so. I don't think you can say that it's the same context. It's not. But why then does he just, off the cuff, quote the words of Jesus from two separate incidents. And I think it's simply this. The reason is simply this, that the words of Jesus were so live in his mind that he unconsciously spoke using the very words that Jesus had used. He loved the word of Jesus to such an extent that he was thinking about it in his mind all the time. For example, when I'm together with, a, with an American for, for some time, maybe a day or two days, well, I will start to maybe use Americanisms, American phrases, or even pick up a little bit of the accent of the person I've been with. Now, if we have been with Jesus, like Peter was with Jesus, and we know that his, <clears throat> his words were the words of God Almighty, well, this wasn't just another guy that we happen to hang out with for a bit, who's influenced our use of language. But the words that came, as it were, from, from the larynx of a Palestinian Jew, were in fact the words of God Almighty. If we can perceive that, the wonder of that, then our minds will be filled with his word. And so when it comes to responding to something... When it, just in our general speech, we will unconsciously reflect his words. So I think, in what Peter says there, I I am he whom you seek, wherefore are you come? And the fact that he's quoting verbatim the words of Jesus, that Jesus had used, phrases, phraseology that Jesus had used, I think that's a beautiful window into the, the mind of Peter, that he was so filled with the words of the Lord that they just came out quite naturally. So then, the penny dropped with Peter. He goes to Cornelius, he starts preaching to him, and he says, now I know, yeah, now I, I know what the vision meant, I've got to baptize this guy. I've got to fellowship with him. And he he says, verse 28, You know, he says to Cornelius, You know that it's unlawful for a Jewish man to keep company with or, or to go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So he understood now that the, the vision about not calling animals common or unclean really meant that he shouldn't call any man common or unclean. And that's why in the vision he saw every single type of unclean animals. All of them. According to, to the Greek text, remember. The, the, we mentioned it before. As if the whole world now is to be preached to. And you think, well, wait a minute, Peter. Jesus had made that quite clear. 
when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. He said it very clearly. And also within his own teaching within the gospels, he had more than implied that in fact the Gentiles were also going to be saved. And in fact the Old Testament passages also say this. So why then did Peter not get it? Why was it such an awful struggle for him? Why? And Jesus had told him, preach to all nations. And there he was going to the Jews and thinking, no, no, I can't even go into the house of a Gentile. Well, he was human. And you and I are human. And what that means is that you can read the Bible, hear the words of the Lord hundreds, thousands of times, and not get the most basic essence of them. That's a fact. What we just read, Acts 10, is an example of that. And so, the question to you and I is, what things do you think you and I are missing out on? What things have we read hundreds, thousands of times that are absolutely obvious, and we're not getting it? Of course, by the very nature of the question, and the very nature of our blindness, we don't know. We can't give an answer, but we should be aware that there likely are such things. And that's why I recommend that before we read Scripture, we should pray, even with our eyes open, for God to speak to us and to open our eyes, as as David says in the Psalms, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things out of your law. And so now the pen is dropped with Peter. He, he puts emphasis on various words that were well known. Let's have a look at verse uh, 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, or that God is no respecter of persons. Of a truth. What does he mean? Well, he knows, he knew, that God is not a respecter of persons, because it says that many times in the Old Testament. You just look up a concordance, respecter of persons, or respect persons, and you'll find several times in the Old Testament the very phrase is used, God does not respect persons. He doesn't show partiality. And now, now Peter says, I know this of a truth. It's like Job, isn't it? Isn't it? When, when he says, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now all the theory, what I knew as just words, as lexical items, if you like, now it has meaning. Now I see it of a truth. And so when he goes on, let's say verse 36, he says, God was preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Well, he knew Jesus was Lord of all. But you can imagine Peter's emphasis being on all. Yeah, not just the Jews, not just us, not just we who who are Jews, but the Gentile world. He's Lord of all. He would have known that. Yeah, Jesus is Lord of all. But he finally put meaning into the most basic words. Lord of all. And you, you can read Peter's speech and, uh, to Cornelius and, and pick this up time, time and again. Uh, he, he, he goes on to talk about all the Jewish prophets. 
43. Peter says, To him, that's Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. You can hear his voice almost emphasizing whoever. Yes, he had read that and seen the essence of it in all the, in all the Jewish prophets, that whoever believes will be forgiven. But now he says, ah, oh, whoever, yeah, well, of course, whoever, literally, not just us, we who are Jews, but, but the whole literal world, whoever, anybody. And so, finally, the penny drops with him. And so, this is the, the challenge to us. We are like Peter. We, some sort of, know the scriptures. We know basic statements. Jesus is Lord of all. And yet, it remains for each of us to put meaning into those words. And God wants us to, to find that. God wants us to find the meaning of our lives. He wants us to be on this journey with him and to travel with him. And he is working in our lives through his word, through our circumstances, through our interaction with people, so that we get it. Now, Peter got it, and he moved on. In conclusion, I would like to, to just point out that the thing that Peter found so difficult, and Paul must have found it terribly difficult as well, was this whole idea of fellowshipping with Gentiles of widening your view of fellowship, of who are God's people. And a number of us have had this. We grew up in a certain mindset that thought that only certain, certain people are in God's fellowship. Other people, well, God seems to turn a blind eye to them. That's what I used to think. Um, and yet, we are led by circumstance, we are led by the word of God, to realize that, no, God is a lot wider in his acceptance of people than we previously thought. And we may kick and scream against that, but he is trying to teach us that. And some people don't get it, they fight against it, kick and scream all their lives. And yet, generally, it is my observation that as people mature spiritually, not just as people get older, although that is also, you know, goes along in, in most cases, I suppose, with spiritual maturity, uh, they become wider in their thinking and in their acceptance of people. Now, there are those who don't, I know. Uh, I can only say I think they're the ones who don't get it. But generally, I think, as one matures spiritually, they see that the grace of God and the desire of God to accept human beings is so great. Now, I'm talking about within the frames of Jesus, within the frames of God's people. I'm not arguing for universal salvation or that, you know, nothing sort of matters, that, that you know, any old religion is good, don't worry about it. No, I'm not saying that. I wouldn't wish to be misunderstood in that way. I am talking about within the frames of the people of God. That it's a terrible struggle to bring ourselves, like Peter, to accept that 
God really does want to accept people. And he, the Lord Jesus, is Lord of all. And whoever truly believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. So the fellowship issue and the idea of ditching exclusivity and accepting the inclusive wish and intention of God and the Lord Jesus is one specific example that we have here with Peter. But let's zoom out somewhat from from that and take the basic point that God wishes to interact with us that his hand is in our lives it sort of meshes together with our meditation upon his word you remember Peter wondering what the vision meant and then ding dong the doorbell goes as it were and then these men are with him he goes with them and he says "Ah, now I understand that I shouldn't call anybody common or unclean. He perceived the, the value of persons, the meaning, uh, I suppose, of, of the human person. And that was where God was trying to, to lead him. And God is trying to lead you and me. He really is. And although we, we might switch off or we, 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 we even kick and scream against him, if we love him, and I do believe we love him. He will lead us, lead us, lead us, lead us closer and closer to himself. And finally, we will get there, and one day that angel will come and stand before us and say, Fear not.